Good morning, Four Corners. What a blessing to worship with you all today. Um, one of the things that we ask ourselves as we come to a passage like Genesis 1, as we come to a, a series on this book of Genesis, is why is it that some people don't believe in a creator? Why is it that some people do not accept the truth that what we see around us had a beginning point, that we don't have an eternal creation or an eternal existence of matter. We don't have something that has just always existed, contracting and expanding into infinity, but we have something that had a beginning that was created. Why is it that there are some who don't accept this reality, this truth? And what I want to emphasize, which I think is so important at this early stage, is that it is not for a lack of evidence. It is not because they have intellectually weighed out and, have, and, and the evidence has been found wanting. It's not because we have an intellectually honest individual who has gone in search of the truth and stacked up the evidence on both sides and has come away saying, no, it falls on the side of unbelief. The problem is exactly as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. That is essentially the problem. And that's what we just read. It's what Mike just read to you all, to us. And that is that we as human beings suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Did you see those words? What has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's not as though it's just a matter of, hey, it's, it's, it's evidential, evidential, it's evidentially based, but it's that it's clear. It's not, just, it's not just true, but it is clearly true and clearly perceivable. But the problem is that the human heart suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and exchanges worship for the immortal God for worship of creatures. One of the things that fascinated me over the last two weeks is reading a, a commentary on Genesis 1 or on these opening verses by John Chrysostom or John Chrysostom. He was an early church father who was commenting on those who believed that everything just sprung up from matter. He was commenting on those who uh, simply believed that what existed existed because of chance or that there was an, an eternal universe that had given rise to what we see. And it's interesting to me that it, it, that's essentially what we're battling with today. It's not new. It's not new that there are people who question the deity of Jesus. It's not new that there are people who think that, that everything came from chance and that matter sprung from matter. It's just recycled. Human beings think that it's novel. We think that somehow we've reached enlightenment. But fi over 1,500 years ago, Christian writers and preachers and so forth, theologians, were arguing against the very same notions that have now been recycled that enlightened man so-called thinks are new. And that, I think, reminds us that Satan has been around for a long time. And the wicked human heart has as well. And that is exactly what lies behind unbelief in the creator God. And I think that tells us this before we go any further this morning. And that is 
that a theology of total depravity is necessary for engaging with unbelievers on an apologetic basis. What I mean by that is, if we are to engage with unbelievers and trying to convince them to believe in our God, to believe in the veracity of our Bible, most, funda- most fundamentally we must understand who we're dealing with. We must understand that we are not dealing with someone who just has not seen this argument that we really need to get across or who has not quite seen this evidence from space or from molecular life or whatever, who's not, who, who has not seen the connections between the organisms in the, in the, on the earth or, or whatever else that we want to, to discuss with them, whatever field of science we want to debate with them on. What we must understand before we have any of those discussions is that we are talking with someone who actively suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and who exchanges worship for the immortal God for the worship of created things. Our theology must always stand at the beginning, our understanding of God and man. And so hopefully that helps us as we go out talking with people and engaging with unbelievers, many of whom would say that there is no God whatsoever. So I just wanted to start with with that idea. But last week, We started this new series on the book of Genesis. We had been back in uh, 2017. We had been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite a while. And then we entered into a period of Advent in December where we looked at the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And so last week we started in this new year, uh, which is quite fitting, a series on Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. So let me just go ahead and get you to turn in your Bibles to that very first page. That very first page of the Bible, you will see there Genesis. And we started with the question last week, if Genesis is the beginning, where does the beginning begin? That was the question that we entertained last week, and the answer was quite simple. It begins with God. It starts with God. God, and we see that with that very first verse, in the beginning, God. So the title for last week's sermon was Starting with God. And and the one thing I wanted us to see at the very beginning before we jumped into the details of that verse and, and before we jump into the details of the creation account in Genesis is that this tells us that every aspect of our lives must start with God and that every facet of human life is about God. And that the Bible does not start with us. It is, we are important at the, in the opening chapter of the Bible. Human beings are, are uh, the pinnacle of God's creation, which we'll talk about even a little bit this morning. But the Bible does not start with us. It doesn't start with our problems. It doesn't start with our needs. It doesn't start with our world's problems. It doesn't start with nature. It starts with the living, eternal creator, God. In the beginning, God. And this explodes with implications for us as we explored last week, and I won't revisit those now. But the one thing that I need to say about this is that so much of our worldview foundations come from Genesis. 
So much of what we, what we understand about reality, what we understand about God, about our, our salvation, about our very nature as human beings, so much of that springs forth from these opening verses and chapters of this book of Genesis, all of which begins with God. And last week, we discussed four characteristics of God that emerge from the very first verse of the Bible. And I won't revisit those now, but one of those was that God is the creator God. And so the very first verb, if the very first thing you have mention of in the Bible is God, the very first verb that we get is created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This tells us that creation is the theme of the first two chapters. As we begin to read on past chapter 1, verse 1, we will see that creation is what these opening chapters are about. Which, let me say this as well. Oftentimes, and I've even heard Christian apologists say this, and this will come up, I think, later. Oftentimes, people will look to references to creation in clearly poetic texts, like in, say, the prophets in Isaiah, Or like in the Psalms, where within an understanding of that genre, it is clearly poetic in nature. And people will look at those descriptions of various things, and they will then, then refer that back to Genesis and say, well, if that's the way we can read such and such psalm, if that's the way we are to understand it figuratively or metaphorically, then so also we can do the same with Genesis. There's a problem with that. There does not seem to be a break in terms of a, a chronological, sequential unfolding of the what and the how of creation that we get in those opening chapters of Genesis. In other words, there is a categorical difference between a reference to God creating in a metaphorical way, laying the earth on its pillars and so forth in Isaiah and the Psalms than when we read in these opening chapters of Genesis, where the narrative very fluidly runs into creation, to the fall, then to Cain and Abel, then to the genealogies, and so forth. At what point are we to see a break? That's, me- that's metaphorical. That's figurative. But now we're entering into some real concrete history about how things happened. I think that's also an essential point to make. As we begin this series, that will come up more later, but I just want to go ahead and kind of lay that foundation stone in place. So, creation is the theme of these first two chapters of Genesis, and from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, we get the days of creation. So, the six days of work followed by one day of rest. So, let's just take a look at the end of some of these verses just so I can give you a sense for the hole that we're entering into now, or about to enter into. So look at verse 5. At the end of verse 5, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Look at the end of verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Then look at verse 13. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. Look at verse 19. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Verse 23. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 31. And God saw at the very end, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So that's uh, what we're sort of going to be moving into soon is chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, where we're dealing with these days of creation. And we'll talk more about that when we come to it. It is these days of creation that will occupy our attention beginning next week and for weeks and weeks to come. Hopefully not too many weeks. We'll see. But today, before we get into the days of creation, starting next week, I want to pause and hover a little bit over chapter 1, verse 2. I think it's important that we take these opening two verses very seriously and deal with them before we begin to move into these days, which begins in verse 3, when God says, let there be light, and we see as it goes on that that is the beginning of day one. Here in chapter one, verse two, we have the initial state of the world. After God made the heavens and the earth, we have verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So after the creation of the heavens and the earth, but before the activity that starts in verse three, that's what we have, that's what we're dealing with in verse two, before we get to those iconic words, and God said, let there be light, and there was Light. That is what we have there in verse 2 before this. So the title for the sermon this morning is Not Yet Ready. And this verse points us to what God will go on to do throughout Genesis 1 to make the world a habitable place. In other words, verse 2 anticipates what God will do. Now catch this. Verse 2 anticipates what God will do by describing what he will move creation away from. In other words, it's very interesting. You read verse 2, and you get the essence of what God is going to do in those six days. In those six days, he's going to essentially undo or reverse what we find in verse 2. So it's very important to see what the state of the world was prior to that. In other words, in this verse, we are told the state from which the creation must move if we are to get what we read at the end of the chapter. Chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. And what is it? Behold, it was very good. If we're going to get all the way to very good, we need to understand what we have in verse 2. And also what we read in chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So that's where we're headed to very good and finished, but that's not where we're at in chapter 1 verse 2. That's where we'll be after those 6 days of creation. So if you will please stand with me for the reading of God's word. What I'll do is read chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, but we'll focus today on verse 2. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness 
was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You could be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on our time. And also today, let's just lift up. There are a number of folks in our congregation who are sick right now. So let's lift them up and also pray. Let's pray together collectively for our uh, women's retreat, which is coming up next weekend. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the maker. And as we consider this, with believing hearts, we are amazed at your grace because we understand total depravity. We understand the enslavement and deadness in sin that your word declares us to be. And here we are, delighting in you, reveling in you as creator God, as our maker, not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, not exchanging you at the core of our persons, not exchanging you for created gods, but worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And Father, what a gift that is, a gift of your mercy as you looked upon our pitiful state, as you looked upon us in utter sinfulness and in our pining after things which do not satisfy in our failing to honor you and give thanks to you in our failing to see you as the glorious splendor that you are as the beautiful eternal infinite immortal God we have sinned against you father and you have while we were still sinners sent your son Christ to die for us Father, we are humbled by that as we come to study your word because we see your redemption even in this, even in this, this moment. We're reminded of your redemption through Christ that, that you created and you have recreated us. And we are being conformed day after day to the perfect image of your son in whom we will live and move and have our being forever. So Father, we are grateful today that you have made us. But God, even more that you have regenerated us. That just as you spoke light out of nothing, you have spoken the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. So God, we praise you for that today. We ask that you would be magnified through this sermon. We ask that you'd be magnified through everything we do in this service. We thank you for Jared and Courtney leading us earlier in praises to you, God. We pray that our, our weak praise, our weak and feeble preaching, our weak and feeble listening would nonetheless glorify you as it is carried along by your spirit, God. We know that you, you are magnified through weakness. And God, you show your strength in our weakness. So even here in this place, with this gathering, would you magnify yourself today? Would you show your strength in weakness? God, we love you. We praise you that you loved us first. Because you loved us first, we have life in you and your son. And the one who is the light of men, as you tell us in John, he has, he has illuminated our hearts and made us worshipers. 
So God, thank you. Would we worship you well today? Would we see clearly how you have prepared this world for us and how you will prepare a new heaven and a new earth for us one day? In Jesus' name, amen. As we consider this verse, chapter 1, verse 2, in light of what God will go on to do in the following chapters, I want to draw our attention to two things this morning. Just two, two points today. Uh, just two. And so you can go ahead and put those up, Kevin, if you don't mind. Two things that we will meditate upon this morning as we go to come to this verse. And that is, one, the, the potter's preparations. And secondly, the intimate involvement. I think there are two. Those are two things that we clearly see kind of emerging out of this verse. So let's look first at the potter's preparations. What is the general state of things described in verse 2? What do we we see as we're entering into the creation account in chapter 1? What is this general state of things that we have by these words here? It says this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, you could say it this way. The earth begins as a desolate, dark, and watery mass. That was where it was before God began to form it and shape it, transform it, and make it as it is today, or as it even was before sin came into the world. And there's a a theory out there called the gap theory. I'm not going to get into that today. That will come up later, I think, kind of in two ways. One, when we're discussing various views of the days uh, in the early part of of Genesis, but also as we come to the serpent in chapter 3 as he enters into the scene and begins to tempt Eve. and, And then, of course, Eve gives the fruit over to Adam, as we come to him, we'll begin to ask the question, where did he come from, this this figure, this dragon of old, as he's called in the New Testament? When did the angels fall? So the gap theory, which we'll talk more about uh, as as things unfold, is that Satan and the demons fell between verses 1 and 2. It's not a theory that I accept or a spouse, but it's one that has been sort of circulated out there. It was uh, well known through the Schofield Study Bible or Schofield Reference Bible. And it's the view that between uh, verse 1 and verse 2, you have the fall of, of Satan and the demons. There was a world here. Everything was great. Satan and the demons fell. That fall then led to what we find in verse 2. And so what we have in verse 2 is the result of a divine judgment. It's the result of a kind of cataclysmic, a catastrophic event, i.e. Satan and the demons falling from heaven. So you have a gap there, and then, of course, God takes that earth that's already there, and he begins to reshape it and mold it and so forth. As I said, not something that I uh, accept for various reasons, but that is at least a view that is out there. Instead, what I see here is God creating very much this desolate, dark, and watery mass before he goes on to do things with it. We can get a sense for the meaning of these first two words, without form and void. What do we make of these two words, these two ideas, without form and void? We can get a sense by looking at the only other place in the Bible where they appear together. They don't appear individually very much in the, in the Bible, but there's one place where they appear together. 
We find that in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. And here's what it says there. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. One of the reasons that some have postulated a a gap theory is because in this context in Jeremiah, it's a context of judgment. It's a context of desolation that has been the result of judgment. I don't think that is convincing evidence for then importing that particular context into these words here and then saying, well, it is necessarily the case that because in Jeremiah, the image of without form and void is present in a judgment context, it therefore must mean that we have a judgment context in Genesis chapter 1 verse Two, but nonetheless, that is one of the pieces of evidence that is cited. But anyway, in Jeremiah 4.23, we have these words, without form and void, being connected to no light. And so that tells us that the darkness we go on to read about is kind of connected to this without form and void. We're not dealing really with three ideas. We're dealing with one idea, one picture of desolation. So what is this? What's going on here? Well, Jeremiah goes on to associate these words with an unstable place. So he talks about in that passage, hills and mountains quaking and moving. And that gives us the image of without form and void is a place that is not stable. It is not formed and fixed and established in the way that we would think about uh, our world today. It is an unstable place. Place. It is a lifeless place. It is said in Jeremiah, he goes on to talk about it being without man or bird. There's nothing on the land and there's nothing in the sky, as Jeremiah is describing it there metaphorically as he's discussing God's judgment and the desolation that has come as a result. So it's a lifeless place, it's a desert place without fruitfulness, and all of this is summed up with the word desolation. No life, no light. And no place to stand. This is an empty wasteland covered in water. And it's dark. Perfectly dark. Entirely dark. I don't know if you've ever gone to uh, like a cave or gone to some caverns. There's a place in North Carolina that we used to go to called Linville Caverns. And we used to go there and they would take you down deep into those caverns. And it was pretty amazing everything that you would see. And then they would say, okay... We're going to turn off the lights, and they would turn off the lights, and you would put your hand in front of your face, and you couldn't see it. And there's many places that you can go even now, maybe not even in a cave or a cavern, where that's the case. You just cannot see your hand in front of your face, even if you wave it. That's the kind of darkness that we're talking about, and covered in water. If you would have looked upon the earth at this time, it would have been an entirely watery mass, much like we get after the flood. So if you'd have looked at the earth from the moon after the flood, it would have been a ball of blue. It was covered in water. And notice here that when you get, you then begin to get God recreating the world with Noah and his family and the animals on the ark, you get an image of the water receding and God beginning to reform, refashion the world. And so I think we're, we're meant to connect those two as we come to the image that we have here. No life, no light, and no place to stand. An empty wasteland. And yet, Isaiah the prophet writes about 
He writes this about God and his creation in Isaiah 45, 18. So this is what Isaiah says about, about creation. He, speaking of God, formed the earth and made it. He established it. And then here's the key I want you to see. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. So when we read that the earth was without form and void, in verse 2, we are meant to anticipate all that God will do in subsequent subsequent verses. This is an anticipatory verse. It pushes us forward to the fact that God is in no way, shape, or form done with what he has created. As Isaiah says, he created it not empty, but to be inhabited. And by the time we get to the very good of chapter 1, verse 31, and the finished of 2, 1, we are looking at a world that is stable, formed, filled, brimming with life, productive, rich, and beautiful. It's an incredible difference that you get when you come to the end of chapter 1 and you look at this world that God has made, this beautiful world with people there, and he says it is very good. And when you contrast that with what we find in the opening verses in verse 2, as Umberto Casuto describes it, God was like a potter. Just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his will in order to mold it according to his wish, so the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to giving it afterwards order and life. So that is the image that we have of God in the opening verses of Genesis is not just the God who creates, but the God who creates and is creative in his forming, his fashioning, his transforming, and his making habitable. So there are a number of questions that I think as we just come to this idea of the potter's preparations, a number of questions that I think this forces us to ask ourselves. And the first one is this. Do you worship God for this forming, filling, and illuminating? And here's what I mean by that. Every single day, from the moment that we wake up in the morning, our alarm goes off and we open up our eyes and we begin to look around our room, our feet touch the floor, and we begin to walk around and we turn on the sink and the water begins to run through our fingers. And we go into the kitchen maybe immediately and make a cup of coffee or whatever else. Uh, all of that, the smells all around us, the taste, that first taste of breakfast, the sight of the people we love, the sounds of the birds outside, and even the cars going by with human agents behind them. All of these things around us point to a God who forms, fills, and illuminates. So the question for us, I think, that we have to begin with is this. Are we intentional observers Is all of this forming and filling and illuminating that God has done the object of our admiration and of our observation, or is it just white noise in the middle of a very busy, preoccupied, slogging through kind of life? Do you know many Christian theologians and Christian philosophers, uh, particularly Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages made, uh, put a lot of emphasis on the use of the senses. 
that God has given us senses, and it is through our senses that we come to understand reality. And do you understand that, that God has given us these five senses to be able to interact with the world that he has made in such a way that we immediately reference it all back to him. Every flavor, every scent, everything we see, everything we touch and hear, all of it is evidence of God's forming and filling and illuminating power. And so the question for us is, are we responsible beings in his world? Are we responsible, rational beings who are able, not just as the animals, to sense things, just as the beasts are able to sense, but that we are able to sense and then to cogitate, to think, to rationalize, to deduce and infer, and all of that is meant to gather up praises to our maker. Everything we see, everything we interact with results or should result in praise. In this sense, living is exciting every moment. You know what this tells us? That there is absolutely no room in human life for being bored. So think about it. How often have you said, I'm just bored? Or how often have you just felt, I'm Bored, or you've said that, or we hear our kids say to us, I am bored. There's absolutely no room in this life, in this world. It's such a short life, such a, such a short, uh, such, such a limited amount of things that we can even see in a day, and so many, so many immeasurable, an immeasurable number of things that we cannot see that are beyond our reach that we could see in various ways. There's absolutely no room for us to be bored. In this life, to be bored is to sin against this God. It is to sin against this God who created everything so magnificently and gave you the ability to experience it and to think about it to his glory. So I hope that this helps us to understand that this world that is full and rich and stable gives Unlimited amount of objects for our praise. So that's the first question. Do you worship God for his filling, forming, and illuminating? But the second question that I think this forces us to ask is, have you considered what all these preparations were for? This is amazing. This is amazing. When you read Psalm 8, man, how amazing it is that you are mindful of him. Who is man? Have you considered that all of these preparations, the sun, the moon, the stars, the light, the land, the seas, the galaxies that are so far away we can, we, we can scarcely conceive of it, and the innumerable, the number of galaxies that we could, we could barely understand, all of this unfathomable creation From the largest things to the smallest things, sun, moon, stars, light, land, seas, flowers, trees, birds, fish, animals of all sorts. Why do they exist all of this for man? That's incredible. And it's very clear to us that that's the case when we read the creation narrative. 
for two reasons. Number one, chronologically and sequentially, man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He's like the crown on top of all of it. It's as though God is forming this thing as the master potter. And when he gets to the end, he puts the final finishing touch on it. Or all of it has been moving to this end. And he caps it off with what it's been moving towards all along. And that is the creation of man. We know it for that reason. And secondly, we know it because what God says to man. What he invests in human beings. He says to human beings that they are made in his image. And then he says that they are to have dominion over everything. And we see that when man sins and falls, when Adam and Eve sin and fall, that it affects the creation. Why? Because they are over the creation. They have dominion over it. And so we see that all of the things around us, all the forming, here's the amazing thing. All the forming, all the filling, all the illuminating was a preparation for human, for Adam and Eve and their descendants. All, all of, we belong to all, we belong to them as descendants. All of us are in that category. Man is God's image bearer and glorifier. And think about this for a moment. Sometimes we say, what is it in creation that glorifies God the most? And maybe you would say that it is the most massive dinosaur is that which glorifies God the most. And in fact, if, however you are to understand uh, in the end of Job, as, as God comes to Job and begins to describe some creature that is just incredible with a tail that swings like a cedar, and that's something we can discuss, uh, if, if that's some kind of dinosaur-like creature, Cave paintings throughout history of dinosaur dragon-like creatures. And we can talk about that in terms of the age of the earth and so forth. But maybe you go to uh, the image of a, a, a massive dinosaur. And that is for you the thing that glorifies God the most. Or maybe you look up into the starry sky on a really, really dark night. When the stars are just gleaming and you look up into the sky, you say, those beautiful balls of plasma, that's what glorifies God the most. That's what makes God look amazing. Who knows what it is in all of our minds that brings out God's glory the most. But the Bible is very clear. It's man. Human beings. Man and woman. Created in his image. These are the instruments of God's glory. And it's amazing when you come to Psalm, chapter, Psalm 19 verse 1. This is what it says. Notice the language. This is very important. We often read Psalm 19 and we, we refer it. We, we just simply camp out on the creation and what the creation does. But listen to what is in, implied by this, by this language. Psalm 19 verse 1. It says this, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, here's the question. When something declares or when something proclaims, there is an object. There is someone, an indirect object, someone to whom that declaration goes. Someone to whom that praise and proclamation goes. It's human beings. The heavens declare to our ears, to our senses. The heavens declare the glory of God to us. The heavens proclaim the glory of God to us. 
that we might think on these things and in our hearts worship our maker. And in Romans 1, 21, we see that the object of all of God's creation, this is humbling, is that we might honor him and give thanks to him. Every star that exists, every aspect of creation, from the largest to the smallest, many of which we have only in recent decades been able to see, all of those things exist that you and I might glorify God in our hearts. The heart of a human being is the theater for God's glory in a way that nothing else is. Forget the sky. Forget the stars. Forget the most amazing creatures. It is the heart of a human being. That is where God has chosen to manifest his glory and to make it explode outward into the world. When it talks about the the earth being filled with the glory of God, it's because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as human beings know him through all things made. It's not that there will be just plenty of splendid waterfalls everywhere and lots of beautiful butterflies and so forth. It will be that way. I'm sure of it. But that is not the end. The end is that we might see it and know God, the glorious creator, at everything we take in with our senses, in our new bodies, in the new heaven and the new earth. This tells us that every bit of form, fullness and light, points us also to God's love for human beings. And this is very important because even at this opening stage, as we consider that God is doing all that he's doing, all of this forming and filling and transforming of this, of this desolate place, of this wasteland that we have in verse 2. As he's going to go on and form that and feel that, he's going to do all of that with man as the pinnacle and man's glorifying of God as the great activity to which all of this moves. It tells us how much God loves people. We have to get this. We get this even from this verse. That God loves human beings so much for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Maybe that verse is trite and, and cliche to you, but it's, it's true. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves people enough to bruise and crush his own son to save us. God's love for us is far surpassing anything that we have ever conceived. And what does this tell us? Who are we not to love our neighbor? Who are we? In light of this God, whom we've all rebelled against, who are we not to, to shine forth this very same love to the people that we meet every day? Everything about Genesis 1 invests dignity in the human person. From the womb all the way until the oldest, oldest, oldest possible age. When that person naturally draws his or her last breath. There is dignity in that human being made in God's image. For whom God made the stars. That is what we get when we open up our Bibles. So we've looked at the first part of verse 2. But what does the second part 
of this verse tell us as we move towards the end this morning? And the second thing we need to look at is the intimate involvement. So we've seen the potter's preparations, but now we need to take a look at the intimate involvement. Look at our verse again. Verse 2. So the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then here's the second part where I want us to camp out as we finish this morning. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Last week I discussed how even in the opening verses of Genesis, we get God, His Spirit, and His Word. It's incredible. Not explicitly so. So that Hebrews would have had a very nuanced, deep understanding of the Trinity. This is not an idea that's developed at that period in redemptive history. But very much we have Abraham talking to a a man who comes to him and he calls that man Lord. We have Joshua meeting the the captain of the hosts of heaven. and, And he takes off his sandals. We have Moses speaking to the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. So what is going on with all of these Perhaps we call them Christophanies, appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. But either way, even here in these opening verses, we get a glimpse of the triune nature of God. And here we have his spirit hovering over the face of the waters. This word for hovering only occurs two other times in the Old Testament. And one of those is also in the Pentateuch. Remember last week I said that the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so it's interesting to me that at the very beginning of the Pentateuch and at the very end of it, you get this this reference to to God as, as hovering. But in Deuteronomy 32, it's an eagle hovering over its young. So in Deuteronomy 32, God describes what he did for Israel. And notice the similarity to our passage. Listen to this. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He's about to die. Moses is about to die. And the children of Israel, the Israelites whom God rescued from Egypt, are about to go into the promised land, being led there by Joshua. And, And it is there that Moses says this to them. He found him, speaking of Israel, talking about this nation. He's using metaphorical language here. He says, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Notice the wilderness language. And then it goes on to say this in verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. Same word, hovering that hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. This is amazing. This tells us that at the very beginning of the law of Moses, the very beginning of, of this five books, which is addressed initially to these Israelites, written at the same time by Moses, that at the very beginning God brings the world into being out of this wilderness and desolation by his spirit hovering over the waters. And it's at the end of Deuteronomy that Moses reminds the people that God came to them in desolation, in a wasteland, in this pitiful state, and he reached down and he transformed them into a people. And he hovered over them like an eagle over its young. This image of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters is like that of an eagle hovering and caring for its young, which is a picture of intimate involvement. God is intimately involved with his creation. And as we finish up this morning, I think this tells us a number of key things. 
once again, we're talking about worldview foundations. I think we have so many just in these opening verses. But here's a few things that I think are implied by this hovering over the waters, over the deep by the Spirit of God. The first thing that it tells us is that God is not just the creator, that he is also the sustainer. God does not make something and then leave it alone. This idea of deism, you know, I I get kind of frustrated when I hear uh, Christians talk about Thomas Jefferson being a Christian. He wasn't. And people like Benjamin Franklin and others, not Christians. They were deists. They believed in a distant God who just set the laws of nature. They were enlightenment thinkers, set the laws of nature in motion and just let it go. Did not believe in miracles. Thomas Jefferson cut all the miracles out of the Bible and made a little Jefferson version of it. This idea of deism, I think, is challenged. Even in chapter 1, verse 2, as we have the Spirit of God, God is just Throw it out there and let it do its thing. No. His spirit hovers over even this desolate, watery world. He is present to his creation. As Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Of Christ, the word, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That even, I've heard people say that even when Christ was on the cross, he was upholding the world. Sustaining the world. It's an unfathomable mystery. How can we understand that? But even as the word incarnate was hanging on the cross, somehow, some way, he was upholding the very world that he had made. He sustains it minute by minute. Every moment is under his governance and control. This is an entirely sovereign God who's always present. So it tells us that, that God is the creator and the sustainer, but it also tells us, I think, that we are to anticipate greater intimacy from God. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 7, we are told that God breathed into his nostrils. Speaking of Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And even more, when we come to the New Testament, how amazing it is to consider that we are called temples of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. This is amazing stuff that the Holy Spirit is there in this watery wasteland hovering over the creation. And that later on in the course of God's redemptive purposes, the Holy Spirit will enter into God's creation, namely man, and dwell within his people. The Spirit of God is eminently at work in your life and in my life. So he's the sustainer. He is intimate in this intense way that we will come to later. Thirdly, I want you to see that it is only by the Spirit. This is very important. It's only by the Spirit that anything happens. So so get this. At this very beginning of creation, we see All this stuff happening, it's incredible. All the things that will happen in these days of creation. And what we need to see is not a single bit of it happens apart from the presence, the energizing, powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And that tells us something very important. There's nothing you will ever do for the Lord apart from the Spirit. There's nothing that we will ever do wisely 
or in an empowered way apart from the Spirit. So we fall on our faces and we beg God to fill us with this Holy Spirit. Because apart from Him, out of the context of Him, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that's going to happen in your life. Nothing that's going to happen in my life. There's absolutely no empowerment without this Spirit. One commentator calls God's Spirit His outgoing energy. He is the one who empowers all that God does. And you know what's amazing? We see this even in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's incredible when you see the baptism of Christ and the Spirit comes down upon him, much like here in the form of a dove hovering over the Lord Jesus. So much there, so much there. And then as we just kind of continue traveling through, we see that it's the Spirit who leads Jesus out into the wilderness that he might be tempted by the devil and overcome being true Israel himself. Israel had failed in the wilderness when Satan tempted them. Christ did not fail when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And then even in a book like the book of Acts, from the very beginning, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit. From Pentecost on, the Spirit is the one who's driving The mission of the early Christians forward. It's the spirit who drove the ministry of Jesus forward. It's the spirit who drives the church forward. And so we must conclude that apart from this Holy Spirit of God, there is no good thing. And let me just make a practical comment about that for our New Year's resolutions. If your New Year's resolutions, get it, get this, are apart from from the Spirit of God, or are void of any sense of His presence, or any prayers for His blessings, your resolutions will crumble. They will amount to nothing. We need desperately, in poverty of spirit, this Holy Spirit. As we finish, I'll make this final point, which I think is quite comforting to us, and that is this, that He is always present. Notice that the Spirit doesn't just show up when it gets beautiful. Notice that the Spirit is not just there when the sun comes out and when the stars start shining and when the birds start chirping and man's naming lions and tigers and rhinoceroses and so forth. That's not when the Spirit shows up. The Spirit is present in the desolation. In this desolate wasteland. And I think that we can draw out of that this very comforting truth. And that is that for the Christian, whether in rejoicing or in suffering, in moments of utter desolation, in moments where life feels formless and void, the Spirit of God is there. We can trust that. Not just when life is good. Not just when things seem ordered. And the chaos is is dissipating and things are are beginning to, to feel right and good and very good. The Spirit is there all the time, even in the midst of the formlessness and void. Brother and sister in Christ, here in these first verses of Genesis, we get so much that tells us how we ought to live, how we ought to think about reality. And so our prayer is that the Lord will massage these truths into our hearts as we move forward and that through them we will be hearers and doers for the glory 
of the God who made all things, that we might see it, know it, and magnify him through it. Let's pray. Our great Father, Lord, you are infinitely majestic and beautiful, perfect and good. You make yourself known in manifold ways through your word. Father, we thank you for showing us just these things today. And Father, we ask that we would leave here with a greater sense of, of your majesty, that we would bow to you and worship that boredom would begin to recede, slogging through life for work or hobbies or whatever would begin to dissipate, Lord, and that we would begin to live far more aware, not because, oh, we have to take hold of the present, it'll soon be gone as some kind of carnal wish to find all the fulfillment in this life that we can but rather to make the most of you while we have breath for your glory, God. We pray that that will be our end every day, every hour. And God, such intentionality, such seriousness about life is, is crushing in our sinfulness because it just feels so unattainable, God. Life has a way of just sweeping us away, as you know, Father. But would our sympathizing high priest, who knows our weakness, intercede for us even now, Father? And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us strength by your spirit to live this kind of life that is intentional and serious and God-glorifying. We know, Father, that it is your will that we glorify you. And so help us, we pray. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who makes all of this possible. And we trust in his name, in his name alone. Amen.